Welcome to the Health Humanities Podcast. Our mission is to facilitate interdisciplinary thinking and creative work related to illness, caregiving, and medicine. I'm Elizabeth Coletti, the Editor-in-Chief of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill, and this episode we'll hear from Katie Danis, who's a writer majoring in medical anthropology with a minor in chemistry. We'll start with hearing her read her poem, Dissecting Your Dad. We hope you enjoy. Dissecting Your Dad Prologue You don't know him for the first five years. The kitchen door creaks at 3 a.m., a formaldehyde fog, a shadow. Years later, you'll swear you heard him humming Backstreet Boys one night. He will deny it. Chapter 1. You will need forceps. Funhouse mirror. At the county fair, you find him in the Hall of Mirrors. Your green eyes, ski slope nose, piano hands, all stretched upward like a beanstalk. You call him the jolly green giant when he wears his lime scrubs. He laughs, and still makes you eat your beans. Chapter 2. You will need Bonesaw. Biology textbooks from 1994. You find him in the margins. College anatomy textbooks, months-old volumes of the American Journal of Gastroenterology covered in the same cramped scrawl as the notes in your lunchbox. You creep downstairs at 2 a.m. and find him combing through patient files in surgical lamplight. You count 20 streaks of silver hair for 20 years of practice, 20 years of you stitching him together, making Franken-Dad Saturdays in your car seat wondering about the man clinging to mom in a parking lot. This is how you come to know your dad through dissection. The scalpel becomes an extension of your arm. You reach for him with knife hands, cover yourself in paper cuts, searching for him. Chapter 3. You will need scissors. New York Times Sunday paper. You carve every conversation, every half-done crossword, every coffee mug with the handle pointed to the left. You gather scraps, hoard pieces no patient or pager can take away from you. You have a hundred in math but still ask him for help with your homework. Chapter four, you will need scalpel, surgical tape. Are you selfish for wanting a surgeon to heal something as trivial as your loneliness? Are you naive to think you need him more than anyone else? His illegible scrawl is etched into your jeans on your face and every eyebrow tug and neck jerk. You stitch together scraps of the man in the mirror, waiting for a pair of lime green scrubs that you can wrap your arms around like an ace bandage before some hospital comes for another part of him. Say, I'm sorry I need so much of you when you already gave me your eyes, your nose, your hands. You carve yourself up for public consumption and I thought I could ration the pieces you gave me, but I am not as selfless as you. I am not cut out to be a surgeon. Epilogue. Intestines squirm through your fingers like cold ramen. Fetal pig strapped supine, chest open to the morning fog. As you pause cutting, passing the scalpel to your lab partner, a familiar scrawl creeps in. Rhomboid, trapezius, latissimus, names colonize the husk between your latex fingers. Anatomy flashcards loop like the chorus to a Backstreet Boys song, or the Green Giant jingle. As your partner peels back the chest muscles, a familiar scent catches you. 
I've always liked the smell of formaldehyde. You would. He holds the scalpel out to you. It's in your blood. That piece is part of our spring 2020 issue, which can be found on our website. It's also the winner of the first annual Walker Percy Prize that was awarded for the 2019-2020 school year. Katie, I'm so glad to get to talk with you today. Me too. It's great to be here. So I wanted to start with talking about the Walker Percy Prize, which we're so glad to be able to add as a part of this journal's work, recognizing the health humanities and particularly work by UNC students within the health humanities. So to that aim, the Walker Percy Prize aims to celebrate the piece published in the HHJ that best exemplifies the spirit of Walker Percy, a physician and a celebrated writer who was interested in philosophy and often combined explorations of science, religion, and contemporary culture in his novels and essays. The primary characteristic of Percy's work is his attempt to present readers with a new perspective. His writing is often surprising and entertaining while it grapples with large issues such as death and existentialism, and it always prioritizes details over abstraction. So, Kitty, had you ever read any of Walker Percy's work? I had not. Even just from this little description here, what do you think about his approach to writing in the health humanities? I think it's very similar to what I aspire to embody. Um, and I love that you mentioned that his work is often entertaining and surprising because those are two things that I try to encapsulate in my poetry to aim, you know, first to engage and then to kind of open up to broader questions. Absolutely. I think your, your piece is so perfectly fits this description. And we had a board of judges and I was really glad when they came back with yours because I really loved this piece when we were you know, going over submissions for the spring 2020 issue, and it is also the the first at the at the top there because of how it is able to kind of lasso all of these experiences in dealing with the medical system and dealing with the health humanities. So then you would say Walker Percy's approach kind of aligns with yours? I would say so. That's what I aspire to be. I don't <laughs> think I'm quite there yet, but maybe one day. Yeah. So do you think that it's worthwhile to kind of come to the health humanities with this like essential aim or for you does each piece have a more specific and personal purpose each piece that I write I mean it's not really like I'm writing them it's like I'm sort of taking dictation for stories that are already there Um, especially with this piece like that was a story from my whole life and from my family's whole life that just really needed to get out Um, so there wasn't so much an approach when I was writing it as there was an approach when I was revising it. And I went over and I was like, oh, okay, so this is the story. This is the narrative. Um, And then I sort of, you know, formed it into something more cohesive. But yes, to answer your question, yes, I absolutely do think there's value in that. In that revising process, I do really love how successfully this piece wraps around and like you mentioned details like the green giant and it comes back at the end or even just the formaldehyde in the first line and the last line from a writing perspective from that revising perspective i think the piece is really effective and then one other detail about this poem that really makes it unique are the the you will need lines which i absolutely love because of the multiple purposes that they play both kind of setting this instructional or academic tone but also kind of acting as a summary i would say of like a preparation for each chapter So why did you want to put these in and how did you decide what to include? 
That's a great question, and I wish I knew the answer. Um, so I think with this poem, because it was just so true to my experience, I there wasn't there wasn't a lot of like, you know, strategy that went into writing it at the beginning. I wasn't like, this is, this means this. It was just kind of, this is, you know, this was my experience. And I think that when I put in the you will need lines, it was speaking to, as you said, you know, the academic tone and the relationship that I had with my dad. Um, Because when I was growing up, my dad was in residency And all the memories that I have of him are good ones, but they're few and far between in my childhood. And I grew up with my mom and we sort of came to know each other by speaking face to face, like all the time, verbal communicators. But with my dad, there was kind of this latency period. Um, And so we only really came to understand each other once I mastered the written word. And then we could get over that like temporal gap. And so like with the New York Times crossword puzzle, it's like that's something that we do now. So like he'll, you know, he leaves so early in the morning before I'm awake, he'll fill out part of the crossword puzzle. I'll go back and I'll fill out the rest. And so it's just things like that. So with the you will need lines, yes, it's sort of speaking to how I had to come to know my dad by approaching him academically, um, because that was the only way I knew how. But then in that, it kind of grew into this deeper emotional connection. I really love what that also says about the health humanities, that like you needed the written medium to be able to make this human connection. I, I really love that. Yeah, that's really true. I was wondering if you kind of have a way of working yourself up to writing a personal piece like this. Like you mentioned that you just kind of sit down and dictate it. No, I uh, <laughs> I wish I had a better answer for you. But honestly, like when I wrote this piece, the first draft of it, it's actually this, how it is presented in the journal is very close to its original draft, which isn't always true of my pieces, but for this one, it is. So I was just, uh, I was just sitting there and I was like studying and then I just had this idea and all of a sudden it was just like fully formed in my head and I just sat, I just got out like my actual study notes and I just wrote it down on that piece of paper in a rough draft. So uh, no, I I think I write better when I'm just like, you know, kind of the messenger for the story. Um, (laughs) So yeah, I'm just the mouthpiece. So are you planning on going into medicine in any way yourself? And so were you inspired by your dad? Absolutely. Um, When I was a little younger, I thought with great certainty that I wanted to be either a neurologist or an infectious disease physician. I still may do that in the future, but I think now I'm concentrating on getting a job and kind of (laughs) establishing a small life for myself first before I decide to take on a big task like, like that, partially because I saw my dad go through that when he was very young. And some of the advice he gave me was, don't do that. (laughs) If you love yourself, don't do that. Um, And, uh, and I really admire him for taking on that kind of stress and, and raising a family. But I think what I want at this time is a little bit different. Um, But one thing that's really wonderful, and that I'm very privileged to have is that I know that my family will support me in whatever I decide to do, as long as it's in the spirit of healing. So you mentioned to me that your major is medical anthropology. Do you have a favorite class at UNC that you've taken in that, that kind of touches on these health humanities topics? I have taken 
several. Um, I was so excited when they announced the medical anthropology major because because of my passion, I had inadvertently taken almost enough classes to fulfill the major. So it was actually, I could graduate faster love by switching my major. <laughs> I love how that works out. We love it when a plan comes together. So I switched my major. And I think one of my favorite classes that I took was Anthropology 190, Comparative Healing Systems with Professor Rivkin Fish, which if I'm not mistaken is a required course for the medical anthropology minor which I was at the time when I was a sophomore. And I just loved that class because it just drove home the points of, you know, biomedicine is a culture like any other medical culture. And it changed my approach to thinking about medicine and, you know, to an extent, practicing health and well-being, whatever that means. And so I don't think that my work would look the same if I hadn't taken that class. So do you have any other ways that you're pursuing the health humanities? I do. Uh, so for the past like year and a half, I've been researching um, experiences of pain in people with Tourette syndrome. That's just kind of a side passion project for me. Uh, and it's something that I've been interested in for a while because that is also something that's very true to my experience. And I've written a little bit about that before. So this is more of an academic approach rather than, you know, a creative piece purely. But there's definitely a creative aspect to it. And I hope that once it all comes together, that maybe I could submit it to the next version, the next volume of the Health Humanities Journal, uh, if they'll have it. So that's something that I'm just very interested in and like researching. We're always looking for submissions. Um, <laughs> so when you were working on this research project, did you have some area of the health humanities that you used to kind of get a handle on it? Or like, did you use that to find a direction to approach it? I drew upon what I learned in some of my other health humanities and medical anthropology classes, two of which I took with Professor Jane Thrillkill, who's wonderful, and I've learned so much from her. And I drew upon, you know, my reading ethnographies, all the ethnographies that I had read. And so in a lot of ways, I mean, the piece that I'm writing right now, which I hope will one day see the light of day, <laughs> um, is it's more an ethnography than anything else. But I think what's kind of different about it is that I'm very much in the narrative. That's true of some ethnographies, but I'm very much, you know, it draws, it started as I, I wonder if there's someone out there who's like me, who's going through what I'm going through. And then I interviewed people all over the world and I found out, well, yes, actually, there are quite a few. So it was just a way for me to come out of my individual loneliness and find someone who shared one of my experiences that isn't normally either talked about in the scientific community or, you know, it doesn't make enough money for people to care enough about it. Like I've so many of my dad's like doctor friends have told me like, no one cares about, no one cares about Tourette's, no one cares about, you know, neurological issues because they're chronic and there's no money in it. You know, there's no glory in kind of managing someone's chronic back pain from their tics all their life. And so I was hoping to kind of draw myself out of, you know, my individual experience into a community of experiences 
and then maybe take that to a higher level and say, well, hey, this is actually something that a lot of people experience, you know, and I, I pulled out some stats, pulled out some AP stats, did some math, crunched some numbers and found out that it actually is pretty prevalent. I'm so impressed by all of the ways that you're putting these ideals of Walker Percy and the health humanities in general into action through your writing, through your research and everything. So thank you so much for coming to talk with me about it and for reading your piece. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real joy to be here. Thank you for listening. You can find Katie's poem and the rest of the Health Humanity Journal Spring 2020 issue on our website linked in the show notes, or go to hhj.web.unc.edu. The music you're hearing now and at the top is from Andy G. Cohen. Thanks again to Katie for coming to talk with me, and be sure to watch for our next episode to hear more from the authors of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill.